right, we are back. I have an item here that we have to start out our second segment with because it's one of the most mind-blowing statistics I've heard in quite some time, and I don't think it got anywhere near the press it deserved. The item is as follows. In this case, I'm going to quote the Boston Globe, but it was here and there on the Internet. Half of all American troop deaths in Iraq have been caused by explosives plundered from Saddam Hussein's weapons depots, according to a new report by the Government Accountability Office. These depots, filled with hundreds of thousands of tons of shells, grenades, and other explosives, remained unguarded for months after the U.S. took control of Iraq. We are losing troops to what are called IEDs, Improvised Explosive Devices. Until this uh, data came out, we didn't know that half of the E in all of those IEDs came from explosives that were not secured because it was politically unpalatable to go into Iraq with sufficient troops to adequately supervise the country. Before we went to war, we discussed on this program the fact that many military experts said that going in with the 130 to 160,000 troops, whatever it was we did, was about half the number needed to do the job properly. The uh, administration derided those people who took that cynical view and said they were way off base. It seems clear at this point that they were not, and we're paying for that now with the lives of many of our troops. It appears that George Bush is not taking the advice of people like James Baker, the man who probably more than any other human being except Karl Rove is responsible for the George W. Bush presidency. Baker's description of the war in Iraq as going badly seems to be ignored by President Bush, who this Tuesday denounced irresponsible Democrats for their going on to spring break without approving money for the Iraq war with no strings attached. CBS News quoted Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid as saying, We're not going to allow the president to continue a failed policy in Iraq. We represent the American people's vision on this failed war. And it appears that uh, Republican Party stalwarts like uh, Robert Mugabe's pals over in Zimbabwe are defecting from their leader. Senator Chuck Hagel, Republican of Nebraska, who is the ranking Republican on the Foreign Relations Committee, by all uh, measures a conservative's conservative, is now openly using the I word. Criticizing Bush, Hagel said, the president says, I don't care. He's not accountable anymore, which isn't totally true. You can't impeach him. And before this is over, you might see calls for his impeachment. I don't know. It depends on how this goes. And Sunday's Sacramento Bee reprinted this from Rolling Stone magazine, which is worth taking a moment to talk about. A panel of experts told writer Tim Dickinson the war is lost, surge or no surge. Even if we had a million men to go in, it's too late now, said retired four-star general Tony McPeak, a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff during the Persian Gulf War. Humpty Dumpty can't be put back together again. Here is the panel of experts, three scenarios of what, uh, what may transpire in Iraq. The best case scenario was described as civil war in Iraq and a stronger al-Qaeda. The best we can hope for is an Iraq that's politically passive but hostile toward America, said Zbigniew Brzezinski, President Carter's national security advisor. Said Nir Rosen, author of in the belly of the beast. It's complete anarchy now. Americans are still killing Iraqi civilians left and right. There's no government in Iraq. It doesn't exist outside the green zone. 
We deliberately created a weak government so that we would have final authority over everything in Iraq. The best you can hope for is that the war doesn't spill into neighboring countries. Okay, keep in mind, that's the panel's best case scenario. What's described as the most likely outcome is years of ethnic cleansing and a war with Iran. Said Bob Graham, ex-chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, this administration seems to be getting ready to make, at a much more significant escalated level, the same mistake in Iran that we made in Iraq. If Iraq has been a disaster, this would be multiple times Iraq. The extent to which this could be the horror of the 21st century is hard to exaggerate. Added Brzezinski, if the war continues without any American willingness to accommodate regionally and to pull out, the Iraq war will be extended to Iran. Then we have what could only be described as the worst case scenario, which is World War III. Said General McPeak, Israel sees that it's threatened by these developments. Once the Israelis get involved, then everybody piles on and you've got nuclear events going off in the Middle East. He concluded, our country's international standing has been frittered away by people who don't have the foggiest understanding of how the hell the world works. America has been conducting an experiment for the past six years, trying to validate the proposition that it really doesn't make any difference who you elect president. Now we know the result of that experiment. If a guy is stupid, it makes a difference. Those are the words of retired four-star general Tony McPeak. He was a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff during the Persian Gulf War. We're going to talk uh, cartoons in segment three a bit, and I think no one, uh, no one hits the nail on the head more accurately than Gary Trudeau in Doonesbury. In uh, his six panels that uh, were in Sunday's Sacramento Bee and elsewhere, he pretty much summarized the situation of uh, the grunts, the soldiers on the ground over there, where he has two of them in conversation. Sarge, I don't understand the debate in Congress. How is cutting off war funds not supporting the troops? Does it mean we'll be stranded here without ammo or rations? Sergeant replies, of course not. It just means we'd have to withdraw. Soldier, really? So if Congress doesn't support the troops, I go home to my family. But if they do support us, we have to keep returning to the meat grinder. Sergeant, uh, right. Soldier, okay. I don't mean to sound ungrateful. Sergeant, permission to think it through, denied. That's a commentary in six comic panels by Gary Trudeau. Let's take a little bit of a longer commentary from the March 24th Economist magazine titled Briefing Iraq. Actually, that's the heading. The title is Mugged by Reality. The magazine tracked down one of the Iraqis who was hitting that statue of Saddam Hussein with a sledgehammer when American troops pulled it down. Said the magazine, One of the men who took a hammer to Saddam's statue told the world's media this week that although Saddam was like Stalin... The occupation is worse. What went wrong? The most popular answer of the American neoconservatives who argued loudest for the war is that it was a good idea, badly executed. Kenneth Edelman, he of Cakewalk, has since called the Bush National Security Team among the most incompetent of the post-war era. Said the magazine, that excuse is too convenient by half. It is what the apologist for communism said. But there can be no denying the project was bungled from the start. Keep in mind, these are the words of The Economist magazine, a conservative British publication. The war was launched by a divided administration that had no settled notion on how to run Iraq after the conquest. The general who warned Congress that stabilizing the country would require several hundred thousand troops was sacked 
for his prescience. So the magazine, Mr. Rumsfeld's one big idea seemed to be that it was not the job of the armed forces he was transforming to become policemen, social workers, or nation builders. As a result, he sent too few, and they did nothing to prevent looters from picking clean all of Iraq's public buildings the moment the regime collapsed. Stuff happens, was the defense secretary's comment. America's plans for Iraq's political transition were also rudimentary to the extent that they existed at all. The Pentagon wanted Ahmed Chalabi and his fellow exiles put swiftly in charge. The State Department thought an American administration would have to be installed. Jay Garner, an amiable general called in from retirement to manage the transition under the understaffed ad hoc body known as the Office of Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistance, received no intelligible instructions from Washington. When the Americans discovered the obvious, Iraqis could not take charge of a state whose institutions had collapsed, General Garner was called home and replaced with a viceroy. Paul Bremer set up his coalition provisional authority inside of one of Saddam Hussein's palaces at the heart of a fortified green zone cut off by tall blast walls from the life of the city. Unlike his predecessors, Bremer had firm views about what needed to be done, views which in short order produced big mistakes. He disbanded the Iraqi army and put tens of thousands of resentful, jobless men with military training out onto the streets. He turfed thousands of Ba'ath Party members out of the bureaucracy, thereby depriving many ministries of their only trained staff. Anyway, I'm not going to read from the whole article, but you should uh, check it up. I think it's probably on the Economist website, but I would like to read the close. Too many people in Washington were fixated on proving an ideological point, that America's values were universal and would be digested effortlessly by people a world away. Messrs. Bush and Rumsfeld chose to send less than half the needed soldiers and gave no proper thought to the aftermath. What a waste. Most Iraqis rejoiced in the toppling of Saddam. They trooped in the millions to vote. What would Iraq be like now if America had approached its perilous, monumentally controversial undertaking with humility, honesty, and courage? Thanks to the almost criminal negligence of the Bush administration, nobody now will ever know. At any rate, uh, this message from The Economist is apparently not sinking in in Washington. Uh, On Tuesday, uh, George Bush said that uh, given his promised veto of anything containing a deadline and the likelihood that his veto would be sustained on Capitol Hill, Bush said the Democrats are merely engaging in games that undercut the troops. And uh, it's surely not going to get better in, in 2009, January 29th, when someone succeeds George W. Bush, if that, uh, if that person is a Republican, because it appears that all the frontrunners are lining up to back up our Iraq war policies, most prominent among them, John McCain. John McCain just went to Baghdad and apparently answered those critics who say that the only safe place uh, in the entire country is in the green zone. McCain went on a radio program said he could walk freely through certain areas of Baghdad. I just came from one, he replied. Things are better and there are encouraging signs. He added, quote, never have I been able to go out into the city as I was today, unquote. But according to the same New York Times report filed on Tuesday, A day after members of an American congressional delegation led by Senator John McCain pointed to their brief visit to Baghdad's central market as evidence that the new security plan for the city was working, uh, the merchants there were incredulous about the American conclusions. What are they talking about? Ali Jassam Faid, the owner of an electrical appliance store, said, the security procedures were abnormal. 
According to the newspaper, the delegation arrived at the market, which is called Georgia, on Sunday with more than 100 soldiers in armored Humvees, the equivalent of an entire company. Attack helicopters circled overhead. A senior American military official in Baghdad said that soldiers redirected traffic from the area and restricted access to the Americans. Sharpshooters were posted on the rooftops. The congressmen wore bulletproof vests throughout their hour-long visit. Said Mr. Fayad, they paralyzed the market when they came. This was only for the media. Now, uh, shortly after uh, their outing at a news conference, John McCain and his three congressional colleagues described Georgia as a safe, bustling place full of hopeful and warmly welcoming Iraqis. Like a normal outdoor market in Indiana in the summertime, offered Representative Mike Pence, an Indiana Republican who was a member of the delegation. It's noted that during their visit, the Americans were buttonholed by merchants and customers who wanted to talk about how unsafe they felt and the urgent need for more security in the markets and throughout the city. They asked about our conditions and we told them the situation was bad, said Aboud Sharif Kaudhuri. When the paper tried to ask McCain about this, uh, a Senate spokesman said he was unavailable for comment because he was traveling. On Monday, several merchants said that Americans' visit might have only made the market a more inviting target for insurgents. Every time the government announces anything, that the electricity is good or the water supply is good, the insurgents come to attack it immediately, said Abu Samer. At any rate, it would refer you to the current edition of Newsweek magazine, a special issue titled Voices of the Fallen. This is the Iraqi war in the words of America's dead. The magazine this week reprints letters, journals, and emails to loved ones sent by men and women who died in the line of duty. We're not going to even attempt to read from that on this program, but would suggest that you need to take a look at it uh, either on the web or perhaps get a copy on the newsstands. We just think we need to return uh, to noting that, again, when you see something you can't understand, look for the financial interest. Someone's making a great deal of money, well... <laughs> What were we, 400 to $500 billion on the Iraq war? We will refer you to the current edition of The Week magazine on newsstands and their briefing on the Halliburton connection. What better way to talk about the military-industrial complex than to quote a bit from this article? It first answered the question, what does Halliburton do in Iraq, by noting virtually everything the military itself doesn't do. The giant conglomerate's logistics and construction unit builds housing, delivers mail, provides cafeteria services to the 150,000 U.S. troops. Its oil field services unit is in charge of repairing Iraq's oil production facilities. And all in all, the contracts of just this one company are worth more than $4.5 billion per year. So for a war lasting four years, that means that just this one company has taken $18 billion of the taxpayers' dollars to run cafeterias, deliver mail, build housing, and just kind of provide the infrastructure. During our upcoming pledge drive in uh, two weeks, we're going to offer the excellent DVD Iraq for sale as a premium for anyone contributing uh, during our hour of fundraising. That, uh, that excellent documentary talks about some of the things that this article talks about, where uh, the Week magazine posed the question, what have the auditors found regarding Halliburton? They noted in just one case, Halliburton billed the government $27.4 million for a shipment of natural gas from Kuwait that cost the company 82000 
Now, Halliburton claimed that the extra charges were justified by the danger of transporting gas over Iraq's sniper and bomb-infested roads. Now, you'd ask, well, what, what's a reasonable markup? Doubling what it cost you? Tripling? Quadrupling? Five times? In this case, for every dollar it cost Halliburton to move that, uh, that natural gas, it charged you and me, the taxpayer, $334. So, invest a dollar, make $333 profit. It's pretty good. And the thing is, you know, the, when the former CEO becomes the vice president and is instrumental in going to war, well, it just smells bad to a lot of people. In fact, it smells pretty bad to us. We will say one thing about Halliburton, though. It does, to some degree, transcend mere party politics. Democrats and Republicans may come and go, but, uh, you know, the military-industrial complex seems to stick around. Noted the magazine uh, regarding the history of the company. It was an oil and gas services company founded in 1919 by what was described as an eccentric inventor named Earl Halliburton. Halliburton never concealed his contempt for the government, and the company did little business with the government until 1962, when it merged with Brown and Root, a Texas construction firm that had bankrolled many Texas politicians, most especially then-Vice President Lyndon Baines Johnson. When Johnson became president after Kennedy was assassinated, the U.S. government quickly became one of Halliburton's biggest customers, prompting charges that the Johnson administration was playing favorites. Of course, back in the 60s, the American taxpayers spent uh, millions and millions and, I suppose, billions of dollars building the giant facility at Cameron Bay, which is now serving the Republic of Vietnam as, I think, their main, uh, main transshipment point for the nation. Come on, Wall Street, don't move slow, white man, this war of gold. No, there's plenty good money to be made by supplying the army with the tools of the trade. Just don't be afraid that if you drop the bomb, they drop it on the Viet Cong. And it's one, two, three, what are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. Next stop is Vietnam. Yes, I think country Joe McDonald had it right back in 1968. There's plenty good money to be made supplying the army with the tools of the trade. We can't resist plugging at this point also that Barry Melton, now a public defender here in Yolo County, was uh, the guitarist for Country Joe and the Fish, and I think played at Woodstock. Uh, he has not been on this program, but I believe that Ron and Richard have had him on more than once over at uh, Speaking in Tongues, heard on this same radio station every Friday at 5 o'clock. All right, we promised on last week's program we'd try and get an Indiana correspondent, and it looks as though we have one. Jeremy Newton uh, now joins us from uh, the, the environs of the University of Indiana, and uh, I guess that's in Bloomington. He's a former KDVSer and can uh, update us on, on the relationship, I think, between the two states. Jeremy, welcome to Radio Parallax. Hi, Doug. How are you? I- I'm well. Remind, uh, remind our listeners what, uh, what your role was here on KDVS. Uh, I was a DJ at KDVS for about four years, and uh, during that time, I was a host with uh, with Ed, who currently hosts the show on Thursday night there at 10 p.m. But uh, we were on Monday nights uh, for a long time, hosting a show called "Get Off uh, Your Mustang, Sally." Uh, my DJ name was Remy, and for about three years, I also served as uh, music director. And uh, uh, I tell you, I do miss KDVS a lot because uh, there's definitely nothing like. Uh, that organization there. Well, you're, you're at a community station in Indiana now. 
yes, I just got involved with uh, WFHB. Uh, it's uh, WFHB.org on the web, and you know they have streaming music and uh, news and things like that. But it's kind of a similar situation to KDVS in that you know it's a community radio station. Uh, they uh, do things like uh, free speech radio news as far as uh, syndicated programming. They also do a good bit of local. Uh, news programming and, of course, uh, free-form music um, for most of the day. So it's kind of a good situation. I didn't realize that I'd get an opportunity to DJ again, um, and I just did a little bit of a search on the Internet and found out that there's community radio here in uh, Indiana. And, Jim, I understand that you are, you're involved with uh, psychiatry, cognition, and the law. Is that, is that right? Or? I teach uh, psychology and law. I'm not quite a psychiatrist. Um, <laughs> And right now I'm actually a fellow over at DePaul University, which is about uh, 35 minutes uh, to the north of, uh, of Bloomington. Isn't that where they just had the sorority girl trouble? Yes, yes it is. And it's been really interesting to see it all happening up front. Uh, you know, Greencastle, Indiana is where the school is located okay. at. We're a small mm-hmm. university, about 2,200 students, a uh, small town, about 10,000 people, and uh, you don't expect to pull up uh, to work and see uh, CNN trucks sitting outside. <laughs> well, now, did they, did they get a bad rap, or were they really dumping out the girls that were they thought too fat and not hip? Basically, what happened was that the, the National uh, Sorority Organization uh, uh, came in and, and reviewed, uh, or what they say was they came in and interviewed uh, the, the sorority members, and uh, they uh, let go of whom they say was... Uh, basically people that were not um, committed to their recruitment. Um, and now on the face of it, what it appears is that there was a lot of gray area in the, in the uh, what, you know, whatever they used to, to decide who wasn't committed. And it seems like the people that remained were uh, those who fit the, the, uh, ideal sorority, the ideal sorority member. And so there was a lot of hubbub over that for a long time. Hmm. I'm glad that it's it's starting to come to a close now with uh, the university severing ties with the sorority, but unfortunately the national organization uh, uh, Delta Zeta has now uh, sued the university. So I guess we'll see what happens from here. Well, Jeremy, uh, I appreciate your coming to talk to us. Maybe we can talk about psychiatry and the law in the future, and I bet I bet we will. But before we go, I wanted to ask you anything about uh, Congressman uh, Mike Pence. Uh, actually, no, I don't. I'm still getting the hang of uh, local politics. So. All right. Well let, well, let me just ask you this. You've probably seen an outdoor market in Indiana. Sure, sure. Yeah. Have you ever noticed, like, 100 armed soldiers in Humvees attack helicopters in the air and snipers on the rooftop? No, not yet. Indiana's kind of a peaceful place. Okay, so that probably wouldn't constitute a normal Indiana summer market, for as far as you know. No, otherwise we just have lots of corn here. <laughs> <laughs> well... Jeremy Newton, thanks for joining us. We hope that we'll talk to you again in the future. And uh, any, any final words for Davis before we go? Um, I just wanted to say that, you know, there's a KDVS fundraiser coming up, and uh, it's a really ideal way of uh, supporting community radio. And, uh, you know, KDVS is an organization that is well worth supporting. And, uh, you know, I, I actually wish that I was still working with the organization, but uh, it's difficult to do that from so far away. So, yeah, stay tuned for the KDVS fundraiser coming up in a few weeks. Well, sir, well-spoken. Jeremy Newton, thanks for that, and we'll, uh, we, we will talk in the future, I'm sure. Okay, bye-bye.
right, let's take a much-needed break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and in a moment we'll come back and speak with our good friend James Israel, publisher and editor of the Comic Press News, now known as the Humor Times. Humor Times. 